Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning. We already heard some verses read from Revelation 6, the six concerning the sixth seal. And we're going to get to that today, but before we go there, let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Okay? And as you're turning, let me just review. We're going to be at point number 8, Roman numeral 8, at the bottom of page 1 of your outline today. But for the sake of review, let me remind you, Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation 18 basically summarizes a tremendous bombardment of God's hardening judgments ahead of Jesus Christ's return at the battle of Armageddon, which is in Revelation 19. And the reason these judgments are poured out upon the earth is the same reason God poured out His plagues upon the nation of Egypt. God poured out His plagues, not just random plagues, simply to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. He could have done that without the plagues. But He did it to demonstrate His power and to demonstrate His ownership not only over the people of Israel, but over the kings of the earth and over the gods of men. Did you know that each one of the plagues that fell on Egypt was a specific attack against one of the gods or goddesses that the Egyptians worshipped? So those plagues not only delivered Israel, they showed the Egyptians that their gods had no power over the God of heaven. And in a similar fashion, these bombarding judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the vile judgments demonstrate God's sovereignty and power on the earth. And they come ahead of the Lamb's invasion at which time He will formally take possession of this earth. The title deed having been opened and Him embracing His role fully and formally as kinsman, redeemer, and owner of the earth, which was ownership of which was given to Adam originally, and Adam sold that birthright, just like Esau did to Satan. But it's Christ and He will take it back. So all of this we're reading about in Revelation 6 up through chapter 18 is this preemptive strike from the Lord. The first five seal judgments that we've read about, we had the four horses of the apocalypse followed by the this fifth seal which was the martyrs of all ages calling for God to avenge their blood at which time God said rest for a little season because there are more that must be martyred. And we talked about that last week. We talked about or, or we explored the question of how in the world is this judgment against the world God promising further martyrdom concerning the saints. And we talked about how wicked men store up wrath as found in Roman, in the book of Romans chapter 2. And this martyrdom of tribulation saints will further guarantee the judgment of God. These first five seals are judgment by natural phenomena or human instrumentality. So these are things that man can do and reproduce. Men can usher in false peace treaties and deceive people. Men can start wars. Men can do foolish things to bring about famine and economic collapse. Men can cause death through foolish actions and hasty actions. And men and the enemies of God kill off the righteous. These things have happened throughout history 
Of course, God is in the background governing all of these things, and these things can only happen insofar as God allows it. But nevertheless, they are judgment by human instrumentality. I believe the first five seals takes place during the first half of the tribulation, or the first half of Daniel's 70th week. And then after these five seals, at some point, Antichrist will break his treaty with Israel, and then you will begin to see a different type of judgment, beginning with the seventh seal. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And those trumpets and vials that follow are supernatural judgments that man can't duplicate, that man is not able to replicate. The sixth seal that we're talking about today, I believe, is the transition. It's the transition between the first half of the tribulation and the second half. So somewhere in the context of the sixth seal, I believe Antichrist breaks his treaty with Israel and so begins the great tribulation. So the sixth seal is a transition. Okay, so keep that in mind as we're studying today. And then, of course, the seventh seal, which includes the seven trumpets and the seven vials, these are judgments by supernatural phenomena. And this is the wrath, the true, serious wrath of the Lamb that the men in chapter 6 are afraid of. But let's first turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is Jesus Christ's Olivet Discourse. Okay? You can see this in... Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. And this is a map, per se, of the end times. Luke's recording also includes more of a map of the church age. It also includes the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 and the resulting diaspora of the Jews and all of the church age. Matthew 24 focuses primarily on the tribulation period, and it is a map that falls right in line with what we've already seen in Revelation. So let's just start with verse 1 of chapter 24. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came to Him for to show Him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus tells His followers, you you see this temple, all of it, every stone will be thrown down. Obviously a shadow fulfillment of that was in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple. But was every stone of that A.D. 70 temple thrown down in A.D. 70? I just repeated myself, AD 70, AD 70, sorry. Was every stone thrown down when the Romans tore it down? No. Where do the Jews pray today? The Western Wall. The Western Foundational Wall. That's where they pray. So there's a few stones still standing, it could be argued. Jesus is talking about when the temple will be destroyed in the last days as a result of Antichrist's breaking of the treaty. And then it says in verse 3, And as He sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto Him privately, saying... So Jesus made this comment publicly, undoubtedly angering the religious leaders or the Pharisees that heard Him. Tell us, when shall these things be? So they're asking, when is it going to happen that this temple will be thrown down? And what shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the world? 
Okay? So the fact that his disciples even asked this question tells us at this point in Jesus' ministry that they had a basic understanding that his first coming was something different than the coming of his kingdom. And then look, look how Jesus answered, verse 4. Jesus answered and said unto him, Take heed that no man deceive you. So, when will these things be? What will be the sign? Jesus says, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. What seal is that? Seal judgment in Revelation. I am Christ, and deceives many. That's the first seal. The white horse. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See ye that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. That's the second seal. War. Verse 7, For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. The third and the fourth seal. Look at verse 8. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Hence my argument that the, the, seal, the first five seals are within the first half of the tribulation. Just the beginning of sorrows. Look at verse 9. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted. He's talking to the disciples, to Jews. And shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. What is this? What's the fifth seal? What did Jesus, or what was told the martyrs in heaven that must now happen before they see God's vengeance? More must be persecuted. More must suffer martyrdom, just as Jesus said here. So we have a progression all the way through the first five seals. And then look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. What does that parallel to? That parallels to Revelation chapter 7 where we see 144,000 witnesses sealed and then we see a great Gentile multitude that is won by their ministry. So you have Revelation 7 and verse 14. And then look at verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. What's the abomination of desolation? He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week and in the midst of the week he will enter into the sanctuary and desecrate it. That's Daniel chapter 9, remember? So now we have the first five seals, Revelation 7, followed by the abomination of desolation in Jesus' order here, or his, his discourse. Verse 16, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him that which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this day. No, nor ever shall be, and except those days should be shortened or limited 
there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So you have the progression in Jesus' Olivet Discourse of the first five seals, the preaching of the Gospel that we'll see in Revelation 7, that's a backdrop to the tribulation period. Then we have the breaking point, the middle point, the abomination of desolation, followed by what Jesus says is great tribulation that the world has never seen. And so this matches the progression we have in Revelation. I believe the sixth seal is the transition from the tribulation to the great tribulation. The first five seals are the first half of Daniel's 70th week before Antichrist breaks the treaty and betrays the Jews. And it involves God's judgments via natural phenomena. The sixth seal is a transition. And this matches the map that Jesus gives here in Matthew 24. So the Scriptures don't contradict themselves. Okay? Matthew 24 was not fulfilled in A.D. 70. A.D. 70, as far as the Jews were concerned, was not the greatest tribulation that the world has ever known. There have been other terrible catastrophes where more people have died in other nations and other genocides since then. So this is awaiting a future fulfillment and it mirrors the map we have in Revelation. The Scripture amazingly agrees with itself. It supplements itself, never contradicting. There's no reason to interpret any of these passages other than the way they're written. Simply and literally. The Bible was not given in esoteric language for only certain people to understand. It was given to the common man. And praise God, as William Tyndale once prayed, the plowboy can know as much about the Scriptures as the Pope. So, we're at a period of transition here in Revelation chapter 6. Let's turn there. The sixth seal. We've just finished the martyred remnant, the fifth seal, calling for God's vengeance. God, or it being explained to them that not yet, there are more that must be martyred. Therefore, treasuring up wrath for the wicked. Then we get into verse 12 of chapter 6. And I beheld when He had opened the sixth seal. Lo, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth. Even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then as was read earlier, the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Here we have an intense judgment. More intense than what we've seen thus far. There's an earthquake. The sun turns black as sackcloth of hair. So we have uh, the language of simile here. A comparison. 
as sackcloth of hair. Not It didn't become a sackcloth. It became as a sackcloth of hair. And the moon became as blood. So we have the language of metaphor here. It says that stars fell to the earth. The heaven departs as a scroll. The land is moved out of place. Rich people and poor people alike flee to dens and caves of the earth. What is this talking about? I believe what we have here is a nuclear holocaust. The thing that this world has feared ever since the days of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. I believe this is nuclear holocaust and the nuclear winter that follows a mass detonation of nuclear weapons. You know, if we detonated a whole slew of nuclear weapons on this planet, it would have major effect on the world climate. It would cause the sun to be blotted out from the soot and ash and the radiation in the atmosphere. It would affect the light of the moon. Has anyone ever seen a test detonation of a nuclear weapon in some of the old films? What does it look like when that mushroom cloud is formed? Looks just like what John's describing. The heaven departs as a scroll and comes back together. And when it comes back together, what happens? Everything that was within the detonation area, ground zero is completely moved out of place. Doesn't even look remotely like what it looked like before. And then, of course, you have the radiation and all of these things. Even today in Chernobyl, nobody lives there. You don't go in there without special equipment. What was the date on that? It was in the 80s, wasn't it? I can't remember what year that was, but there's radiation levels there even today that are extremely dangerous. The fallout from that detonation at that nuclear plant in Russia greatly affected life in parts of the Ukraine and in Belarus. Even today, there are children born with deformities and affected because of the radiation that blew over that country back then. Animal life was affected. You, the, the, the entire area around Chernobyl was a very fruitful area, and of course nothing hardly at all grows there that's of any nutritional value anymore. So what we see here, I believe, this transition is a nuclear holocaust. Okay? The sixth seal judgment. The Bible talks about this same judgment elsewhere. Turn to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2 Verses 30 and 31. Now, the context of the book of Joel, the context of these verses is an end times revival before the coming of the Lord. We see this coming of the Lord in Revelation 19. It's for, or, or we see this end times revival foreshadowed in Acts chapter 2. And of course, the Lord comes in Revelation 19. If you go on and read into Joel chapter 3, you have a description of the battle of Armageddon. You can look at verses like verse 2, I will gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Verse 14, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So Joel chapter 3, you have the gathering of nations at Armageddon. And so in this context... The Bible describes an end times revival. I think this is the ministry of the 144,000 witnesses. And after this is described in, in verse 28, something that Peter cites at Pentecost, because what was experienced at Pentecost was a shadow fulfillment of that, and we'll talk about that later. 
God says this, And I will show, verse 30, wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. The great and terrible day of the Lord talked about here is not in the sense of the entire tribulation. It's what follows in chapter 3, which is Armageddon and the coming of Christ. So sometime before this, Joel says, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. And this is all, of course, in the context of revival. Now, Peter cites these verses in Acts chapter 2, and we know that at Pentecost, the sun did not become dark and the moon did not turn into blood. So obviously, that was a shadow fulfillment of a greater ultimate fulfillment. And we'll talk about that later. But we have these same cosmic disturbances mentioned in Revelation 6 here in Joel chapter 2. Now, these are not permanent cosmic disturbances. Okay? It's a temporary condition. You know, the sun will eventually shine again. The moon's light will be restored. Things will, the climate will be stabilized after a nuclear holocaust eventually, depending on when and where and how many weapons are used and how much, the, uh, how, how, how intense uh, an attack is pinpointed, etc., etc. But these are temporary. They're a result of man's foolish and hasty actions, I believe. The reason I know they're temporary is because the fourth trumpet judgment, which comes later, involves the darkening of the sun by a third, the darkening of the moon by a third, and the darkening of the starlight by a third. And so, that wouldn't make any sense if what happens here is permanent. And then the fourth vile judgment we'll see later in Revelation is the sun scorching men with fire. The heat of the sun becoming so intense that men are scorched. So obviously the sackcloth, the hair, the blood imagery used here is a temporary thing. What comes later with cosmic signs and wonders is beyond man's ability. Man doesn't have the ability. It doesn't matter how many nuclear weapons he detonates. Number one, he doesn't have the ability to destroy the earth completely. And number two, he can't affect the light of the sun in terms of its fuel, fueling of itself. He can't affect the light of the stars in terms of the lessening of their brightness from their source. These are things that only God can do. So here I believe we see John describing the effects of nuclear holocaust and nuclear winter. And it agrees with what Joel describes in chapter 2. It's just the first of several cosmic disturbances we'll see during this tribulation period. This is a transitional judgment. I'm sorry, this is a hardening judgment. A hardening judgment. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. Just like was read this morning. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, they hide themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains and do what? Repent? No. They don't repent. They flee. It's a hardening judgment. There's sorrow, but godly sorrow works repentance. And there is no repentance here. These judgments are hardening just like the judgments that fell upon Egypt and Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He could have repented, but he didn't. He was hardened. 
And the same thing will happen. Men will not repent as a result of these judgments. And that's the saddest um, epitaph of all. That many will not repent. Not just the poor who we saw judged earlier with the third seal because of the price of food, but also the rich here find their judgment. They don't escape. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, and the mighty men become just like the poor in these moments. Just like the bondmen, they have to flee to the mountains. Money and wealth will not protect anyone in this day. I don't care if so-and-so is a billionaire. I don't care how much power and influence they have in a particular country or particular context. Money and wealth will not provide refuge in the great and terrible day of the Lord. I'm reminded of Proverbs 11 verse 4. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing in the day of wrath. Righteousness delivers from death. What is righteousness? The righteousness of the Lamb. How are we clothed in that righteousness? Through repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can protect you from from the wrath of God. No riches, no wealth, no college degree, no power, no influence, no political office. Oh, how deceived and deluded are the peoples of today. No megachurch congregation will save you in that day. No TV ministry. And sadly, many, many, many will refuse to repent. Sorrow, but sorrow without repentance. So it's not godly sorrow. Let's look at Romans 9 for a moment. Now many Christians can't stomach the verses I'm about to read. Nevertheless, it is the Word of God, and therefore we believe it. If you have a problem with it, take it up with God. Listen to this. Keep in mind these are hardening judgments. Or this judgment hardens the hearts of men. Therefore, chapter 9, verse 18, hath He, that is God, mercy on whom He will have mercy, and whom He will, He hardens. So God decides upon whom to have mercy, and upon whom to harden. And in this judgment, He chooses to harden the hearts of the men of this earth. Look at verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who is able to resist his will? In other words, if God hardens men, it's not fair. We can't resist Him. Everything's just going to happen the way He wants it to happen. So it's not our fault. It's not fair. Verse 20. Nay, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Who are you to even ask God why He does what He does? Shall the thing formed to him say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Shall you endeavor to question the one who's made you? God has mercy upon whom he has mercy. He hardens whom he will harden. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I may not understand all of those things, but I know that God is the potter. I'm just the clay. Usually when we go out and preach the gospel on the streets and people want to get into this philosophical discussion about why would a benevolent God allow me to suffer? My life has been so terrible. You know, coming from the mouth of an American, that's pretty much a joke. You know, they want to talk about this or blame God for this. And I used to get in these apologetic debates over that stuff and really people whose hearts are in that place of pride don't want to hear the truth. So the best response to that is, who are you? to say to God 
Why have you made me this way? That's the best response to the scoffer. It is written, Who art thou that repliest against God? God has mercy upon whom He will have mercy. He has mercy on those 144,000 witnesses and the Gentile multitude that we'll see come to the Lord. And then He chooses to harden the kings of the earth, the wicked men of the earth, the vast multitudes, those that claim to follow Christ in this day but never really did and find themselves left behind. He chooses to harden them. You think that's not fair? What God does is right and fair. Who are we to question Him? God calls us to trust Him. And praise God through Jesus Christ, we can have His mercy. The testimony of everyone here today who's been born again is a testimony of God's mercy. And what if God, willing to show His mercy and make it more abundant to the children of mercy, pours out His wrath on the wicked so that we more fully appreciate His grace in our lives? It's an amazing paradox that comes from God. And who are men to answer God? Hardening judgments. Men will not repent. This is also a transitional judgment, I believe. The sixth seal. It's a hardening judgment for the world. Just like the preaching of Noah in the days of the flood was a hardening judgment. Men did not repent. The building of the ark was a testimony and a hardening judgment. Men scoffed and mocked. And when God closed the door of the ark, it was too late. Transitional judgment. Look at verse 17. Praise God, we're going to finish the chapter today. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The wicked in these moments of holocaust think that the great day of God's or the Lamb's wrath has come. I say man's observation here is wrong. Not just yet. They have no idea what's coming. And we see this as the book continues. Men are crying the great day of the wrath of God. The wrath of the Lamb has come. No. This is only the beginning. The beginning of sorrows. We have a transition here. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. John didn't just randomly write this stuff. It all agrees with the same type of language used in the Old Testament. We've seen how this fits Matthew 24. We've seen the exact same description in Joel chapter 2. Now let's look at Isaiah chapter 2. Now what we have in chapter 2 of Isaiah, the first five verses, is kingdom promises concerning the millennium. The millennial reign of Christ and the fulfillment of prophecies and promises to Israel described in the first five verses. And it, but from verse 6 on, it is revealed through the prophet that judgment will come before blessing. So the blessing is described, the blessings of the last days in the first part of chapter 2, and then it tells us that chastisement against Israel, the time of Jacob's pr- trouble, trouble, tribulation, trial will come before blessing. That's what happens beginning with verse 6. And then it talks about the land being full of idols and how the pride of men will be bowed down. 
You can go and read this whole chapter if you'd like, but let's start with verse 19. Look at what is described here in, in these days of trial and tribulation that precede kingdom blessing. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty, when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Notice that phrase, when He arises to shake terribly the earth. That verb, ariseth, in Hebrew, connotes a beginning of something. A starting point. What is this starting point when God arises to start shaking the earth Himself? It's when men go into the holes of the rocks and the caves of the earth. What do they do in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15? Go into the holes of the rocks and the caves of the earth. So Isaiah chapter 2 is describing the sixth seal. And Isaiah chapter 2 in two places defines it as when God arises to shake terribly the earth. Connoting the beginning of something. That's why I believe this is a transition. It's a transition from judgment via man-made foolishness and natural phenomena into judgment when God starts shaking the earth. Man has shook the earth because God has allowed it. And you could even say because God has caused it. Now God arises to shake the earth. A nuclear holocaust, man shaking, blends into God shaking. So we have a transitional judgment. The sixth seal is not the great day of wrath. It's only the beginning. Here, the Lord simply arises to shake the earth. Seals 1-5 through five is God setting in motion the out-of-control shakings of man. Now the Lord arises. The imagery that comes to my mind here, being a martial arts instructor, is a martial arts dojo. A student, maybe it's a beginner, maybe it's a black belt, trying to break a board. And he's chopping at this board over and over. And it's splintering just a little bit. And it won't break. Then the sensei steps in and says, Give me that! And he breaks through it with one chop. No effort. This is the imagery I get here. Man's shaking the earth. God arises, give me that. I'm going to shake it. It's a transitional judgment, I believe. Into the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation as Jesus terms it. We have a similar transition back in the book of Exodus when the plagues fall upon Egypt. I know we're turning all over the place today, but this is good for you to familiarize yourself with the whole Bible. Turn to Exodus chapter 8. Here we have the contest with Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron. Moses tells Pharaoh, let God, on, on behalf of God, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. Moses shows a sign by casting his rod down, it becomes a serpent. The magicians. And the witch doctors of Pharaoh are able to do the same. However, Moses, or Aaron's rod, swallows up the rods of the magicians. 1 
first plague was turning the rivers to blood. Were the magicians able to duplicate that? Yep. Pharaoh's magicians were able to duplicate that. Look in chapter 7, verse 22. The magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. Just like they were able to duplicate the rods turning into serpents. Then we get into chapter 8, and we've got the second plague, which is frogs. Frogs covered the land. Look at verse 7 of chapter 8. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs upon the land of Egypt. Then we get into the third plague later in the chapter. Lice. And then look at verse 18. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So we have a transition here between the second and the third plague. And if you want to pull in the signs Moses had done before the plague started, you had Pharaoh's magicians able to duplicate what was being done. Now, not to the extent it was being done, but they were able to duplicate it and therefore people sloughed it off as witchcraft. But when the lice came, they tried to duplicate this but couldn't. And so even these magicians recognize this is the finger of God. Unfortunately, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, they weren't able to duplicate any of the other plagues. That's where it stopped. So you have a transition. I think that's what's happening here with the, after the sixth seal. All that follows involves supernatural, paranormal phenomena. You have the seventh seal, which is the seven trumpet judgments. The seven trumpet which is the seventh, seventh trumpet, which is the seven vile judgments. Man cannot duplicate what follows the sixth seal. Normal processes cannot replicate the judgments that come after and fall under the seventh seal. So here we have a transition. A hardening judgment, a transitioning judgment. Nuclear holocaust. If you skip over chapter 7, which I believe is somewhat of a parenthesis as the tribulation progresses and go to verse 1, you have the seventh seal being opened. Then it says there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. That's the eye of the storm. And then comes the storm of God. As we'll go on and study the seven Trumpet judgments. Listen to these. Hail mingled with blood and fire. That comes from God. Blood in the hail. Fire in the hail. Miraculous. A fiery mountain turns a third of the sea to blood. That's supernatural. Man can't duplicate that. Wormwood. A comet contaminates the freshwater sources. A third of the freshwater. The fact that only a third is contaminated. That... The limitation there is supernatural, paranormal. The celestial lights are darkened by a third. Locust, demonic locust, come out from the bottomless pit. A 200 million soldier demonic army is unleashed. Can man duplicate this stuff? No, things change. Look, there is a spirit world. 
There are principalities and powers in high places, in wicked places. They are active today. Ask Bishnu, ask Brother James. They know these things. We here in America mock and think there's a logical, quote-unquote, scientific explanation for everything. That everything can be naturally explained away. And we refuse to even acknowledge that there's a spiritual side of things. Deceived we are. America mocks. But during the Great Tribulation, the things that we think don't even exist will be unleashed in ways that they cannot be denied. I'm not talking about a charismatic circus here. I'm not talking about a demon under every rock today. You know, the problem with a lot of these charismatic teachers, they're described here in the book of Colossians. Let me read this here for a moment. Let me give a shout out to all you TV preachers today. The Bible talks about you. Colossians chapter 2, 18 and 19. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding up the head. That's, a accurate, that's an accurate description of a TV preacher. Intruding in the things which he's not seen, vainly puffed up and not holding up the head, which is Christ. False teachers. I'm not talking about the spirit world in the sense that the charismatic... Charlatans describe it. But there's a day when it will be unleashed and eyes will be opened. Eyes that are closed, eyes that mock today will be opened. Turn to 2 Kings. It's going to be kind of the opposite of what we see here in 2 Kings chapter 6. There was a man who didn't understand the spiritual, that couldn't see it. And his eyes were open to see it. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 13. This involves the ministry of Elisha. And Elisha said, or he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. Now this is not, I'm sorry, not Elisha speaking. This is the king of Syria. He wanted to search out Elisha. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he, that's the king of Syria, thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. So the king of Syria of Assyria wanted Elisha captured and brought back to him. And when the servant of the man of God, Elisha's servant, verse 15, was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Full of fear. What can we do? We're surrounded. And he, or Elisha, answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with him. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So in in those moments, there was a spiritual side to what was happening. And God opened the eyes of the servant to see it for his good. There's coming a day when the 
the, the eyes of men will be open to see the spiritual side unto their destruction. In a sense, it's the opposite of what we see here in 2 Kings 6. We do well to remember that there are, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's why we need to take unto ourselves the entire armor of God. Not getting these foolish debates or arguments or callings out with demons and devils like these charismatic clowns do, but resorting to the simple strategy we see of Michael the archangel and Jude. The Lord rebuke you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, the Bible says. But there is a spiritual side and the eyes of those that mock these things, the eyes of the rationalist and the scientist will be open when these judgments pour down. I believe the sixth seal is a transition from the first half to the second half of the tribulation. From the tribulation to the great tribulation, Jesus speaks of in the Olivet Discourse. I believe that the abomination of desolation instituted by Antichrist will either inaugurate this nuclear holocaust or it will be a result of this nuclear holocaust. I don't really know for sure. There will be a nuclear holocaust on earth. In the spiritual dimension, there will be a holocaust in heaven. And I think it all comes together. Timing itself with the midpoint of the tribulation. Turn to Revelation 12. Even this war, this nuclear war, as described in the sixth seal, will have a heavenly counterpart, a spiritual dimension. Revelation chapter 12, 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. So as a result of this war, Satan is cast out of heaven. It didn't happen in A.D. 70. Or Satan couldn't be called the accuser of the brethren later on in verse 10 because there was no brethren in the church to be accused of down through the centuries until after Christ. I mean, this didn't happen at the cross, I'm sorry, because the brethren, the church referred to here, when Satan's called the accuser of the brethren, didn't come until Pentecost. So, I believe at the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan is cast out of heaven. Verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. This is the first time Satan is specifically identified as the serpent in Genesis 3 which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren, that is Christians, is cast down, which accused, which accused them before our God day and night. That's what Satan's doing right now. Accusing us before God. He will accuse us at the judgment seat of Christ. He will try to come in to the marriage supper of the Lamb and He won't have wedding garments. And someone will say, who is this without wedding garments? Cast Him out. That's what's happening here. So we have the heavenly side of this sixth seal. Satan is cast out of heaven. And then as you go on and read the rest of chapter 12, we see that he becomes very angry. 
Because He knows His time is short. And He unleashes vengeance against the nation of Israel. And then you go into chapter 13 and you have the beast out of the sea which is the, to whom the dragon gives his power. That's the rise of Antichrist described post-abomination of desolation. And so we all have, all of these things are timing together to usher in the great tribulation. It agrees with Joel chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2. It agrees with Matthew chapter 24, the order described there by Jesus. And it agrees with this war in heaven that happens as a backdrop in Revelation 12. So the sixth seal is the war in heaven between Michael and the dragon and the nuclear holocaust on earth. That's just my opinion as I read these things and I see how they fit together. There is a spiritual side to every war. When Daniel was praying and seeking God and seeking to understand the visions, an angel came and said, I'm sorry I've taken so long, but I was withheld or, or the prince of Persia resisted me. That was the spiritual principality behind the kingdom of Persia. And then when he left Daniel, he said, now I go to fight more with the prince of Persia and then the prince of Greece will come. So everything that happens here on earth, what happens in Israel, in the Middle East, what's happening with Russia and the Ukraine, what's happening on our border with Mexico, all of these things have a spiritual side principalities and powers. And we would do well to remember these things. Against this backdrop, and I'll, I'll conclude here today, against this backdrop of the sixth seal, there are some things for which we can rejoice. Revelation, I mean Matthew 24.14. I've already read it this morning. Let's revisit it again. Matthew 24.14. Jesus talks about all these things happening. People being persecuted. But then this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So against this backdrop, there's going to be great preaching. There's going to be a Pentecost-like revival. The church won't be here, praise God, but we'll see these things on the sidelines. God's not going to be done saving people even though the great majority of men will refuse to repent. So against this backdrop, you have Matthew 24, 14, the Gospel finally going to the complete total ends of the earth. A job started by Paul and the apostles. A job continued and carried out by the church down through the ages. And a job completed by the sealed of the nation of Israel. Begun by a Jewish church, finished by a Jewish remnant. So this idea that, that we're going to take a team to Bangladesh in October, and we just might be the ones to share the gospel with the last person on earth, and then the end comes. That's foolishness. That job's completed by Jewish preachers. Jewish preachers started the Great Commission, they're going to finish it. And praise God, we as Gentiles get to even be a part of it. But against this backdrop, we have great preaching. Against this backdrop, we also have the entire chapter 7 of Revelation. It's a parenthesis that's happening in the background as these seals are opened. And if you read chapter 7 this week, I encourage you to do it. That's what we're going to speak about next Sunday. It'll give you cause for rejoicing. 
So we have gospel preaching. We have the gleanings of the harvest. The conversion of the tribulation saints. The work and witness of the 144,000 witnesses sealed from the tribes of Israel. These things are happening in the background. To the church, the born-again remnant of today that's hearing these words, praise God, we've not been appointed to wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5. We've not been appointed to wrath. These are the days of wrath. The church will be raptured out. That ought not cause us to sit still and do nothing. It ought to cause us to labor intently to follow the example that we'll see of these witnesses next week. We need to hold fast. Hebrews 10.23 and I'll close with this. It says these words, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. In view of these truths, in view of the coming wrath, in view of the last awakening that comes, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. And then verse 25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. As we see the day of Christ coming for His church, as we see the dawn of this worldwide judgment, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Don't tell me you're just going to have church on your own in your little corner of the woods or by yourself in your home. Because every church is corrupt. Oh, there's plenty of corrupt churches out there. There's plenty of corrupt denominations that are denying the foundations of the faith. But God has a remnant. And God commands you as a Christian not to forsake the assembling together with your brethren in Christ. So if your cop-out is, I'm just going to worship God in my own way, you're disobedient in these last days. Even more important is it for us to gather together and encourage one another as we see these things approaching. So for those out there who are comfortable just doing their own thing, and not gathering with the brethren, or won't exert any energy whatsoever to try to find a remnant church, shame on you, you're a disobedient Christian. You need to repent. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as we look for that day in solemnity, but yet thankful that we've been redeemed and that we're not appointed to wrath. All right. Let's uh, next week we're going to get into Revelation seven. I'm hoping that I can actually. I promised you guys that I would preach through an entire chapter in one Sunday. I'm going to attempt it with Revelation seven. If I fail on seven, I'm pretty sure I can do it with chapter eighteen. So we'll see what happens. Um, so we've covered the extent of this outline. So I actually stopped at a good place today. And I'll have another one for you next week. Anybody have any questions? Any questions? Again, I'm just describing things as they seem to me. I'm not going to be dogmatic about some of these inferences in terms of the sixth seal and the transition and whether it's nuclear war or not. But this is what makes sense to me. And I think we have room to disagree on some of these things or to see them in a different light. And so I'm just doing the best with what I have and 
and what I've studied. But again, we don't have to be dogmatic about the details, but we are dogmatic about the great truths. God's going to judge this world, and He's going to take back what is rightfully His.